0: And we do different things. And even when I come up here with my normal mic, this thing gets out of whack and it goes here and there. I was so pleased watching both the Republican and Democrat conventions that with 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 all the different speakers and all the different uh, pundits and news people being interviewed that they all that that everybody's got microphones got askew and messed up and pointed in weird directions. So I guess it's just. Uh, relatively normal. All right, a couple of announcements tonight just to remind everybody. Number one, if you've got kids, grandkids, great-grandkids, or you want to have them here 10 minutes early on Sunday because we're going to start teaching them some Bible memory songs. Sally's written some. We need to have them here a little early because she needs to be back in here uh, before... church starts on Sunday morning, so we're going to give that a try. As much of a challenge as it is, I figure if Jesus could enable Peter to walk on water, then he may be able to strengthen parents to get their kids here 10 minutes early, but that may be pushing it. The other thing is that we're having our picnic on the 13th, Saturday the 13th of October, so prepare for that. And then also I appreciate the prayers uh, from everyone on my dad. Uh, The situation is... In the Lord's hands, uh, it's a, I think, a great test. Is for each of us is growing old. I don't know whether it's the test is greater for those of us who are the caregivers, or those of us who are who are getting older, or are both. But it, it's definitely a challenge. I've been the Lord's been very gracious to me in providing some really good caregivers that are very helpful, and otherwise I would. Uh, You'd probably be watching Jude tonight and more video on the way but uh, so I'm very thankful for that, but he is uh, it's very difficult for him because he's got Alzheimer's, as most of you know, which means he really doesn't know why he's in the hospital what's going on, why he has things sticking out of him, so he's constantly uh, pulling uh, needles and cords and vein you know whatever it is he pulls it out and and he gets real combative and antagonistic. And I went in the other morning, and the uh, the orderly was kind of laughing about it. He said, "Well, your dad looks like he was." We, he said, "We get a lot of people like that in here. They've got Alzheimer's. They were very independent. They got up, they did what they wanted to do most of their lives. Now they can't, and they're very frustrated." And he said, "He only took he only took a swing at me twice during the night." And uh, and he today they were trying to do a procedure this afternoon, and he's kicking at them with his good leg, and things like that. So it and they can't do the procedure. So pray that uh, that he can calm down, get some sleep tonight, and that he'll be in a, at least a frame of mind where uh, we can explain to him. Of course, neither Army, who takes helps take care of him, nor I were down there this afternoon when they tried this. So. And even when we're there, sometimes it doesn't do any good. So you need to pray that he'll be calm, but you need to pray that I'll be calm. (laughs) I don't want to have to bail the pastor out for patricide tomorrow. So I appreciate your prayers and just everything else that goes with this. Uh, He's clearly a believer. And that's, that's not, I mean, that's not the issue. The issue is just all of the logistics that are involved, as as many of you know. That is what weighs on you is just taking care of all those other details. So I appreciate your prayers. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can all make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study the word, have an opportunity to confess any known sins to the Lord to make sure that uh, we're cleansed of all sin and restored to fellowship so that we are prepared spiritually to walk by the Spirit as we study the word this evening. So let's bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our oh, Father, we are so thankful that we have you to come to in times of difficulty, challenges, trouble always learning to trust in you, rely upon you, walk moment by moment in dependence upon you as we exercise the faith rest drill. Father, we pray for many in this congregation who face similar circumstances to the one I'm going through as they are caregivers dealing with either elderly parents or spouses who have uh, health problems and taking care of them. We pray for sustenance for them, provision for them, Father, we're just thankful that we have you to um, come to, to hold on to, to recognize that there is a plan and a purpose, even though we may not understand it, and that we can relax in your provision and in your care, as the scripture says, we are to cast our care upon you because you care for us. Father, we pray that as we study your word today, we might be reminded again of your grace and of your goodness to us, that it's not up to us, it's not based on our strength or our goodness or righteousness, but on uh, your grace and the righteousness of christ his substitutionary death on the cross for us as he paid the penalty for our sins and thus all we need to do is trust in him and him alone we pray that as we study this evening we might be strengthened and encouraged as your grace was so evident in your work in the life of saul of tarsus we pray this in christ's name amen open your bibles to acts chapter 9 Acts 9, and tonight we're going to start what I think is one of the most interesting, exciting uh, episodes of a personal nature that's related in the Scripture, and that is the salvation, the conversion of the Apostle Paul. This section is biographical in many ways. It's very important because there are three times in Acts that the story of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus are are described by uh, Luke. It's described as a uh, third-person narrative here in Acts chapter 9. It's described two more times from a first-person perspective as the Apostle Paul relates it first to the mob in Jerusalem in Acts uh, 22 and then later in Acts uh, 26 as he gives his uh, testimony to uh, King Herod Agrippa II, and one of the rules, one of the sort of laws of observation in any in Bible study, as we read the Scripture, because the Holy Spirit is extremely efficient and economic in His use of of, of language and in in the telling of episodes in history, narrative bio, uh, biography, that for these events to be recited three times in Acts and then referred to, again, in Galatians, in Philippians, and alluded to in a couple of places in Second Corinthians, tells us how important the Holy Spirit views this episode. This isn't just a story, but it's also uh, it's foundational to understanding uh, some critical elements of grace, grace versus legalism, it's important for understanding the power of God in transforming the thinking and then the life of an individual as we see this radical transformation that takes place in the person of the of Saul of Tarsus, who becomes known in history as the Apostle Paul. And it's important for us to understand the, that the supernatural and miraculous nature of his conversion, number one, and of the revelation that God gives him, which becomes the foundation for much of the New Testament, much of doctrinal teaching in the New Testament. And consequently, what we see in anything that is important is that it becomes the target of major assaults and attacks from those who are opposed to Christianity. And this comes from a number of different sources and ultimately... What they try to do is give this a naturalistic interpretation. Now, you have to remember that from the uh, unbelieving viewpoint, there is no God. I mean, that's the basic assumption of theological liberalism. No matter what they may claim, uh, they may claim a certain amount of agnosticism or something like that. But at the bottom line, they have a God who does not... Uh, does not enter into and act in space-time history. He is either a disconnected God or he is an impotent God, and they view everything that way so that whatever happens in history is always from the vantage point of a a naturalistic worldview, a natural worldview that by definition excludes the kind of supernatural uh, interference in history that the bible presents therefore when they when the unbeliever the modern unbeliever reads this he discounts it immediately i mean within that nanosecond of hearing the story and and discussing it he immediately discounts it as this can't be true by by definition because this i've never seen anything like this god doesn't do this in anybody's life today therefore it's just a story. It's just a myth. It is something that somebody dreamed up in order to uh, pro- just promote his own religious views, and it has no uh, foundation in objective reality or objective fact. And so there is the attempt to completely reinterpret this in terms of some sort of psychological uh, narrative. And this is something that if you have children or grandchildren that they will be hit with if they go to any kind of schooling, whether it's in junior high, high school, probably even elementary school, or especially in uh, university, this is how uh, religion is presented. There's no distinction between any of these religions. And so I've I've, uh, titled this, uh, Saul to Paul, Psychological break, psychotic break, or psychological delusion or divine revelation of grace. And I, one reason I chose that as a focal point is because when I first went off to university, and I was hit with this in Western civilization. I mean, this was the assumption of the Methodist, uh, very involved Methodist Uh, professor that I had of uh, Western... In fact, we argued about this and continue to if I... On occasion, I see him about maybe once every 10 years. Uh, But that's his presupposition. He's Methodist, but he's liberal. And that's the assumption of liberalism, is that of liberal theology, is that God does not enter into human history and do these things. And you can try to talk to somebody with that kind of assumption until you're blue in the face... And until you challenge that assumption, you're not going to get anywhere because everything that they say is logically consistent with that assumption. And if you start trying to argue facts and history and details like that uh, without dealing with that underlying assumption, then we really don't, uh, don't get anywhere at all. This episode with Saul fits perfectly within the Uh, thesis the purpose of the book of acts there is the expansion this is the story of the expansion of christianity by the holy spirit beginning in jerusalem then judea and samaria as we have seen and then to the uttermost part of the earth and it is this episode in acts chapter 9 when the apostle paul Uh, when Saul of Tarsus is converted and becomes the Apostle Paul, is given a commission by the Lord Jesus Christ to take the gospel not to the Jews. Peter is the apostle to the Jews. The other disciples, as far as we know, focus more upon the Jews, but it is Paul who will be known as the apostle to the Gentiles, the one who truly exploits, although as we'll see in Acts 10, it is Peter who's the first apostle who takes gospel to a Gentile, Cornelius. But it is Paul who will exploit that in his three missionary journeys and then, of course, his fourth journey, which is a journey uh, to Rome. So we want to look at this, and we're going to see that it's biographical. And a lot of times in, quote, doctrinal churches or teaching churches, we don't spend a lot of time on biography. And yet, if you look at the Bible, the vast majority of the Bible is narrative. It's, it's a story. It's, it's biographical in many ways because it's in the, the, the story of people's lives and how God works in people's lives that we see flesh and blood or as uh, older pastors used to say, we see doctrine put into shoe leather and we see it worked out in... In history, And that's very important because the doctrine that we believe, the teaching that we believe, isn't just some abstract theological system. It's not a philosophy. It's not just principles of life. It is the reality of, of God's creation and how this is to be part of our lives. We're to live consistently with that because this is the warp and woof of, of, of reality. And so you can't separate that. Uh, separate doctrine from history, from individuals' lives, and from uh, specific events. If you do that, if you cut the doctrine and separate it from these historical events in and through which the doctrine is revealed, then it becomes nothing more than an academic exercise. It's nothing more than a philosophical system. It's no different from Confucianism, Taoism, uh, Hinduism, or or Uh, Freudianism, Marxism or any other philosophical system that is one thing that makes Christianity and Judeo-Christianity going back to the Old Testament so, so different. God reveals himself in and through history so you can't divorce history from doctrine and you have to understand doctrine within the historical context right now as most of you know uh, I'm preparing for this, uh, this uh, event in San Antonio in November dealing with the topic of radical Islam. And, of course, today we are observing Patriots Day as we remember what took place 11 years ago when we were, received a surprise attack from Islamists. And I remember predicting at that time that it would probably take about 10 or 15 years, but that this country would completely reverse its view of Islam and all of the hostility, all of the patriotism, all of the desire to, to end the radical Islam would disappear. And in fact, that has, that has uh, happened. In studying Islam, in studying the Quran, history is simply Tangential; it's just coincidental to what is revealed in the Quran. The Quran is not even revealed in are written in historical order. It's not until you get uh, far into uh, the Quran that you actually read about how Muhammad uh, received the Quran. Uh, so it is not historically based. It is really just another philosophical system that has been uh, written into a book that claims some sort of divine origin. It's only in Judeo-Christianity that you have this emphasis in history as the outworking of God's plan and purpose that gives history a meaning. History has no meaning in Islam. History has no meaning in, really in Greek philosophy and uh, most Greek philosophy, it's just endless cycles, same as it is in Hinduism. It's only the Bible that gives meaning to history, and since our lives are history-written small within the framework of large history, if history is irrelevant, your life is irrelevant. And the Bible gives meaning and value to every individual's life, first of all because we're all created in the image and likeness of God, and second because history has a, is divinely guided and has a God-intended uh, God purpose. So this is extremely important and extremely significant. Now, I just mentioned the fact that today's Patriot Day and we have this situation that occurs today related to Islam. Political correctness is, is basically the suicide weapon that Western civilization has chosen. Political correctness is destroying and will destroy if it is not stopped, and I don't think it will be, that will destroy Western civilization because it is a mask that we have chosen to put on in order to avoid looking at reality as it is. Political correctness has redefined many issues in life so that we can't do certain things or talk about certain things because if we do, it's going to offend somebody. And one of the great social sins today is that we may do something that offends somebody. Well, I'm sorry, but anything any of us does is bound to offend somebody, and the Word of God and the cross of Christ is certainly offensive to a large segment of of people in this world. But today was a perfect example A perfect example, I don't know how many of you read the news today, but this morning, halfway around the world in Cairo, a bunch of uh, radicals and uh, uh, 'er ne'er-do-wells and pawns of Islamists in Cairo uh, breached the security of the United States Embassy and tore down the U.S. flag, attempted to raise a black flag on which was written uh, the basic uh, saying of... um, of Islam, there is only one God. Uh, there is no God but Allah, and uh, Muhammad is His messenger. Uh, they were prevented from raising that flag, but uh, they were acting allegedly in response to uh, some incident in uh, in the West, where or in the United States, where somebody had burned a uh, Quran. And, and so they're expressing all of this outrage that they have been so offended. And see, what happens is they operate on this extreme reaction. And they've been so intimidated the West that we basically got a bunch of wimps, wimpy politicians, and wimpy people in the military, and wimpy people leading countries who, oh, we're so sorry. They're doing, they're operating just the opposite of the way they should. What they should be saying is that your very existence as the worshiper of this idol stone in Mecca is an offense to everybody else, and you either shut up about it or we're going to nuke it. And that's how we should be. But we don't have the guts to do it. We don't have the guts to stand up to it. And so for the last 10 years, what we have seen is that in Europe, in one country after another, the political leadership in those countries have allowed uh, the expansion of these uh, Islamic ghettos, basically, these enclaves to develop within their countries where now their their local British police, French police, Norwegian police, Dutch police won't even go into these areas. These areas in France and in England have been given almost an independent uh, capability and identification to run their subculture, their Islamic subculture, according to Sharia law and people are afraid to stand up to them. And not only that, but you have people who have succumbed to the the liberal notions uh, that are part of political correctness that identify multi, uh, multiculturalism, that all cultures are equally good. Let me tell you something. If you, I can't understand why a liberal thinks all cultures are equally good, and on the one hand he's defending an Islamic culture who wants to... Uh, Capitally execute every homosexual or every woman that uh, doesn't wear a hijab. And then on the other hand, they're going to march against uh, evangelical Christians and march against Washington because they're not going to allow uh, same sex marriage or they don't like same sex marriage. I mean, this is just absolute ethical, legal, political schizophrenia. It's not even schizophrenia, it's just they're divorced from reality. Uh, completely divorced from reality. And they have our politicians in Washington absolutely cowering over, o, over the, the political correctness uh, of, of liberals. And nobody wants to, and unless we get somebody who's got the, the guts to stand up to uh, this Islamic radicalism, and it really isn't radicalism. We have done such a distur- disservice from President Bush coming out and saying, Islam is a religion of peace. That shows an absolute ignorance of Islam. Islam is a religion of peace only for those who are in the house or domain of Islam, the house of peace, the Dar es Salaam. And and for those who are outside, they're called the house of war. Violence is for them to convert them to, to Islam. And failure, ignorance, to un- understand this, is living in this fantasy world that has been created by the leadership of this world academic leadership political leadership mi- military leadership and we are afraid to to identify that that Islam at its very core if you are are the people of the book and you interpret that book literally at face value the same way you would ident- you would interpret uh, uh, instructions from the IRS or a letter from a girlfriend when you're 16 years old or something like that. If you're, if you're interpreting that at face value literally, then you believe that uh, you as a Muslim should take over the world by violence. Not all of those who believe that would affirm and would go along with terrorism. But in the United States, we've become so distorted In our viewpoint, so, so divorced from reality that we just focus on terrorism, which is about, which is less than 10% of those who are the literal uh, believers in, in the Quran. And so, as a result of that, uh, we're focusing on just one minor element, and this whole other element is allowed to just flourish and to grow. And uh, we better wake up here in Houston, Texas. I've heard this from several uh, extremely knowledgeable sources. One is an old friend of mine who was uh, with Houston Police Department and was the liaison officer with the, uh, with the FBI and their counterterrorism task force uh, back in the 90s for about 15 years. He had that, that position also from a local congressman that Houston has one of the most radicalized Muslim communities in the country. It's not as bad as Michigan, but it is bad. And if you don't know this, we have, uh, there, if you drive down um, Allen Parkway down there by the Federal Reserve Bank building, there's a large uh, vacant area there, and that is going to be the site of a mosque that will be built there. And when it's built, it will be the largest mosque in the United States. We have an Islamic training center right over here. These people are the enemy of, West, the self-declared enemy of Western civilization. And we have to take them at their word. But but oh, that's not politically correct. There are so many wonderful Muslims. We can't separate nice personality from evil beliefs. And so as a result, all of the, what we hear with all the patriotism is just a veneer. It, it almost makes me ill listening to all of the honors given on September 11th to those who fell because what has happened is that we have completely forgotten who the enemy is and we no longer believe in defeating and destroying the enemy. In fact, we coddle the enemy and we have an administration today that is uh, unwilling to fully pursue legally uh, every avenue at destroying, executing, Uh, these particular individuals. We have an attorney general who still wants to treat it as a crime. It is not a crime. It is an act of war and needs to be treated as an act of war. But we no longer believe that there are absolutes. We've We've succumbed to just pure relativism. And this is the same kind of thing, pulling us back into Acts chapter 9 now, this is the same kind of thing that we see in these misinterpretations of Christianity is that oh there's no such thing as a, as a real absolute, and that is one of the dividing points between a biblical worldview or divine viewpoint, and human viewpoint. Human viewpoint says that man is the center of everything and man determines ultimate reality. Divine viewpoint says God determines ultimate reality and everything operates according to His. Uh, manual of instruction and his manual based on the fact that he is the creator of all things and anyone who is not worshipping the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob through Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us is an idolater to the greatest degree it doesn't matter if their eternal destiny might happen to be heaven rather than hell because at some point they trusted in Christ whether they are a Mormon or they are a uh, a black liberation theology pastor or whatever their view is, they are an idolater and teaching just different forms of satanic uh, doctrine rather than understanding the doctrine that was revealed to us about the church through the Apostle Paul based upon the grace of God. And so understanding the life of Paul that is centered and this event is so uh, so very important, and sadly, many Christians many um, many young people, are never exposed to the to the biography of Paul in scripture and it, it on all of these doctrines that we that we see that are taught in the scripture, as we will see tonight and next week, are grounded in what happens in the life of Paul as God reveals it to him. You can't divorce, uh, while that doctrine is true apart from Paul, it is revealed in and through Paul. And again and again and again he returns back to this these events in Acts chapter 9. So what I want to do tonight and pro- possibly going into next week is to review uh, what goes on. Just get the history, just get the narrative down, what actually happened and who's involved uh, in all of this. We're introduced in Acts chapter uh, 9, verse 1, uh, to Saul. This isn't our first introduction to Saul. We've already uh, met him in Acts chapter 7, in the beginning of Acts chapter 8, but now uh, Luke comes back to him. He says, then Saul. See, he's been talking about what happened in the expansion of the gospel to the Samaritans and to the Ethiopian eunuch uh, from ch- uh, chapter 8, verse 4 uh, on, because in Acts 4 there was a persecution that developed in Jerusalem. And so the disciples were scattered, and but in their scattering, they're proclaiming, they're evangelizing, which is the word that is used there in Acts 8, 4, they're scattered everywhere preaching the word that is evangelizing uh, through the word of God. This is the cause, caused by the persecution that is spearheaded in many ways by Saul of Tarsus as described in Acts chapter uh, 8 verses 1 through 3. So Acts 9-1 just picking up where that narrative left off in Acts 8-3. And here we read, then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and so he asks for letters from him to the synagogue of Damascus, so this is authorization to go outside of the province of Judea, to go to Syria, what is now Syria, in order to seek out and arrest and destroy anyone who is a Christian. They're identified here as those who were of the way. This was the early uh, way of, of identifying them. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That would be the origin of this term. They're not called Christians yet. That comes later. They're simply called people of the way because they understood that there was only one way to God, and that was through Jesus. And so he's going to seek them out. Notice what he's going to do with them at the end of verse 2, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he wants to arrest them, put them in chains, and then bring them back uh, for trial and persecution to, to Jerusalem. Now, let's look at the map on the screen, and this will help to orient us a little bit geographically to what I, I'm talking about. If you look here on the screen, you'll see down here at the bottom is the location of Jerusalem. It is just to the west of the northern tip of the Dead Sea, and it is about uh, 90 miles or so from Jerusalem up to the uh, Lake Kinneret, as it's called uh, by modern Israelis, the Sea of Galilee, and then it's about another uh, 75 miles or 80 miles or so to Damascus, and Damascus is the capital of Syria. When you are here, right about at the tip of where that arrow is, and this mountainous area right here, this is where Mount Hermon is located, This flat, open area just to the south of the the mountains here, that's the um, flat terrain of the Golan Heights. Uh, This was known in the uh, Old Testament as as Bashan. Talk about the bulls of Bashan and the cows of Bashan, and that was that particular territory. This was the site of some of the most significant uh, tank battles in all of history took place here in October of 1973 in the Yom Kippur War. And uh, though the Israelis were taken by surprise, it uh, wasn't a complete surprise, they anticipated something, but a lot of the, uh, they, they weren't as prepared as, as they uh, initially thought. There were about 12 to 1,400 Syrian tanks that crossed the, crossed the border attacking into Israel, and Israel had about 250 tanks, up there to defend against uh, the Syrian invasion. The Syrians had, uh, had night scopes. The Syrians had night fighting capability. The Israelis had none. And uh, yet after a couple of days, the, uh, the Israelis overpowered and turned back the invading force of the Syrians and pushed them back to within 45 miles of Damascus. And there they were stopped because of, of actions at the UN and calling an end to the war. So that's really how close Damascus is. If you're here at Mount Hermon, on a clear day you can see Damascus because it's only about 50 miles, and uh, and you can get a good, good view of Damascus. Now, Syria is in the news a lot today. Uh, this area along the coast here from this north-south ridgeline here over across to the coast, that is Lebanon, which historically all of these areas were were pretty much part, uh, part of the uh, same territory through the Ottoman Empire with just uh, Sy- the region of Syria, all of this. There wasn't a state of Palestine. There weren't any Palestinian people. There were just Arabs. And there were a number of Jews that continued to live uh, in um, in their historic homeland uh, that that never left. In fact, there are people in a number of locations in the Galilee. There are Jewish families that can trace their lineage uh, by generation to generation all the way back to the Second Temple period. So this is the area today where there is all of the civil unrest. Up in the north you have, uh, this is Antioch, where we'll see uh, a church being established there later on in Acts. This is the church that commissions uh, Paul and Barnabas to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Uh, this area up here, uh, over here is Aleppo, where they well-known for one of the ancient uh, mysteries related to the Bible, is the Aleppo Codex, which is a ancient copy of the Hebrew Old Testament and it was uh, taken out of there, rescued out of there some years ago, but there's uh, about a third of it is missing and nobody knows where that is. And it's very interesting, but it's a, uh, it is a, a tremendous artifact. Anyway, this area up here in Northwest Syria is the traditional homeland of the Alawite people. The Alawites are a minority of about a million and a half in Syria and Bashar Assad is an Alawite. One of the reasons that Assad does not want to uh, give up his power is, aside from his psychodementia, thinking that uh, uh, you know he has been given a divine right to rule, is that if he were to step down, then this would leave his people exposed to the revenge of the Sunni Muslims and if they if he steps down then there would be a bloodbath like we haven't seen as they seek to uh, bring about their revenge against uh, the alawite for all of their real and per- perceived and imagined uh, uh persecution over the years from from the alawite minority uh, it's interesting from 1924 until 19 i think it was 33 or 34 there was actually an independent Alawite nation. They had their own post office. They minted their own money. Uh, they had their own police force. And it wasn't until 34 when the French forced the Alawites and a couple of other minority groups that had, had a sovereign territory to merge together into modern Syria, which was just a sort of a, a hodgepodge of different groups that didn't uh, have a natural unifying factor. You had the Druze. You had Syrian uh, Christians. You also had uh, the Alawites, which were, go back to a, a sect that split off from Islam in the uh, uh, about 1000 A.D., and the Muslims and the Alawites just hate each other. They despise each other, and that's been going on for over 1,000 years. So that's, that's all going on in this land that was the birthplace in many ways of the... Gentile church as it expanded out of Syria so that there is traditionally until recently been a large representation of Christians in Syria, in Damascus, in Aleppo, in Antioch. But over the last uh, 10 or 20 years, especially the last 10 years, uh, due to the rise uh, or the impact of more uh, more Islamism, uh, this has uh, seriously shrunk. Now, what happened just this last week is that this is a Turkey, modern Turkey up here uh, along the Mediterranean, and the border continues across uh, the, the, uh, to the east. Uh, that's their northern border until it comes to Iraq. Uh, and then on their southern border down here, you have the Kingdom of Jordan, which you see this is designated as the Arabian Desert. And this southern border here is the kingdom of Jordan. Last Wednesday, kingdom of Jordan and Turkey closed their borders to Syrian refugees. How many of y'all heard that on the news? Now we were too concerned about the Democratic Party, party, and uh, and and Charlotte, so we didn't hear that. So what happens if you are a Druze, or if you are a Christian and you're under persecution, or you're just uh, a, a Syrian who wants to get out of the way of all this violence, where do you go? You can you can't go to Turkey now. You can't go to Lebanon. You can go to either Iraq or or, or Israel. What kind of pressure does that put on the Israeli government? Trying to what happens if all of a sudden you get five thousand refu- Syrian refugees show up on your on the uh, Israeli border right here, right right about here? Wanting to come over and escape into into Israel, do you stop them? What do you think the world's going to think of you if you try to stop them? Oh, it's very, it's an interesting world in which we live, but that's the modern modern situation, modern circumstance, and we're concerned about what happened two thousand years ago with uh, Saul of Tarsus. But this locates you geographically. All of this happened in this in this particular in this particular vicinity. And so Paul is going to relate to us something about who he is and what happened. He, he journeys to Damascus. And then starting in verse 3, he tells us what happened on the road to Damascus. But before we get into that, I want to look at some of his, the other places where he talks about this, because we ought to identify... Uh, This man, Saul of Tarsus, who is he? Where did he come from? Uh, What kind of uh, uh, information do we know about him? If you just turn the page back uh, to the end of chapter 7, in verse uh, 58, while they are stoning Stephen, who is one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church, uh, being stoned by the self-righteous leaders, religious leaders of Jerusalem, Pharisees and Sadducees. We know the Pharisees were there because... Uh, verse fifty eight they cast him out of the city, that is uh, Stephen, and stoned him. and the witnesses laid down their clothes. the witnesses were those who also had to pick up the stones to stone him. The witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now this is important because one of the things we have to do is figure out the chronology of the life of of, um, of the life of Paul. And he's called a young man here. That means uh, he, he's that term, young man, would be applied up to the age of 30. So we know that he's no older than 30 at this point, and he's probably not younger than 20. So that sort of gives us a little bit of a, a, a about a decade to work with there and figuring out his age. Now, if we uh, go into the first part of chapter 8, we read... Now Saul was consenting to his death. He was in full approval. He is not only watching everybody's clothes, but he is a cheerleader for those who are stoning Saul. It gives insight into his character and his belief system. He is one of the strongest advocates for Pharisaical Judaism at this time. He is... If uh, history ha- is accurate and there is some suggestion from uh, a couple of extra-biblical writers that he, his name was expunged from uh, Talmud sources, Mishnah sources, but he was the number one disciple trainee of Gamaliel who in this generation was the greatest uh, rabbinical teacher of his day. In fact, he was Gamaliel II was one of the greatest uh, rabbis of all the generations and was the grandson of the great, one of the greatest rabbis in Judaism, uh, Rabbi Hillel. And Saul is his number one pupil, and number two is so far behind, we would never hear of who they are because they were just mediocre. Saul is way out in front. So, this is a picture of a man who is passionate about what he believes. It is a picture of a man who is so committed to what he believes that when there is a challenge to that belief system, he is willing to take the initiative to physically persecute, assault, arrest, and execute for blasphemy those who opposed him. So this is his viewpoint. And he's concerned to the death. And as a result of this particular time, we're told in verse 1, that a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The apostles are staying at home base in Jerusalem, uh, directing things, as it were. And devout men, we're told, verse 2, carried Stephen to his burial, made great lamentation over him. And as for Saul, verse 3, he made havoc of the church. He created chaos. He is seeking out where they meet he is breaking in on their meetings. He is arresting uh, Christians. He is taking them before tribunals. He is putting them in chains, and he is doing everything he can to destroy uh, this new movement that has uh, that has developed. As we look at, at his age, uh, just as a little little more information, if the crucifixion of Christ occurred in A.D. 33 then this event took place probably no, uh, n- uh, no earlier than two years later. So this is would have taken place about 35 A.D. And it had to, the all these events described in Acts chapter 9 would have had to have been completed by 37. The reason we say that is that in 2 Corinthians 11, Verses 32 and 33, we're told that when Paul escaped from Damascus, so he's going to go on this trip to Damascus. On the way to Damascus, he's confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ in a vision. That is when he converts and trusts in Christ as Savior. Then he will spend three years in Damascus. He takes a brief hiatus out into the Arabian Desert. And as we see from, from the um, a map here, here's Damascus. Here's the Arabian Desert. He didn't have far to go. He just went, had to go five, ten miles out into uh, the wilderness where he could be alone and rethink things. He's not out there very long. He's in Damascus for three years. We're told that uh, in Second Corinthians eleven thirty-two and thirty-three, that at the time Damascus was still under the rule of King Aretas II, who was a Nabatean there. Uh, capital city was down in uh, Petra, down south, and he died in A.D. 40. So these events had to take place, his conversion had to take place at least three years before King A- Aretas, Aretas died. So that means that the events on the road to Damascus occurred between 35 and 37. Uh, rabbinic tradition meant that Paul would have, under normal circumstances, that he would have moved to Jerusalem to begin his rabbinic studies under Gamaliel when he was uh, probably 13 or 14, just after he was bar mitzvahed. If we assume the youngest uh, age that uh, occurs here, uh, that he would be 20 when this takes place in AD 35, that would mean that he would have moved to um, uh, that he would have been born about 15 A.D., moved to Jerusalem about 28 or so. At the outset, he would have uh, uh, moved, if he was, let's say, 30 and 34, then he would have been born about 4, and he would have moved to Jerusalem about 14 A.D. So somewhere between 14 A.D. and 28 is when he moves to Jerusalem. Now, that's fascinating. That means that at the very least, Saul of Tarsus is living as a student of Gamaliel in Jerusalem between 28 and 35 A.D. Now, think about that. Who keeps coming into Jerusalem during those years? Jesus. Jesus. So he would not have been ignorant of Jesus of Nazareth. We're not told anything about that, but I think it is uh, not uh, beyond the realm of legitimate speculation. And I don't mean, well, just making something up, but I think that the logical conclusion from just looking at the time is that Saul of Tarsus would have been in Jerusalem during all of the events related to the life and ministry of Jesus in Jerusalem. He would have been fully aware of everything uh, that was going on leading up to the crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, and the events afterwards. And what happens is he is hostile to all of this. If you had met Paul or Saul of Tarsus any day up until the day that Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, if you had met him 15 minutes earlier, you would have been convinced that he's a lost cause. This guy is a religious rabble rouser he 's operating on religious arrogance on steroids. If anybody is going to, is hostile to jesus in christianity it 's the apostle Paul. If I can say anybody 's never going to respond to the gospel it 's going to be paul and look what happens. See, you and I never have any right to ever think that somebody we 've been witnessing to is not ever going to be be responsive to the gospel because we don't know how long it will take before the Holy Spirit makes it really clear to them and they finally see the light, metaphorically, as Paul saw the light, uh, literally. So he would have been in Jerusalem during all of the events related to the, to the end of uh, Jesus' life. Now, what we know about Paul is that he was born in Tarsus, and I left this on the map, I've the largest map, but here's Tarsus up here in southeastern Asia Minor in the uh, region of Cilicia, it's a port city, it's on a major trade route. It was had a major population in south central Asia Minor, so there's a lot of affluence there based on trade. He's from a family that has a business, a commercial enterprise, and that is that they are tent makers. That doesn't mean that that Paul's mom and dad just sat around the back of the house and sewed together leather skins to make tents. It's more of a commercial enterprise than that. They would have uh, they would have employed people. They would have had a major uh, tent making tent manufacturing operation there, especially f- selling their tents to these uh, caravanners who are traveling through, uh, repairing tents. All of this would have been part. Of their operation, it's evident from the fact that that his family has a Roman citizenship that would not have been inexpensive. Inexperi- in, in, in that they were in the upper echelons of of society and privilege, and that they were uh, they were fairly wealthy. Also, the fact that Paul was that they were able to afford to send Paul to Jerusalem for his rabbinical training also speaks of the fact that they were. Uh, economically, um, economically strong. So he grew grew up in Tarsus. How much he was exposed to Gentile civilization uh, uh, and Gentile teaching, uh, we don't know. Uh, It was a center for stoic philosophy. There was a major uh, university training center there for physicians. Some people have speculated that it may be in Tarsus that he met uh, Luke, the physician, that maybe Luke went to Had got his medical training there. We don't know uh, about that. That's just an interesting guess. But Paul is from this family of Hellenized Jews that several generations back had uh, left Galilee. They they were originally from Giscala in Galilee, and that they were from the tribe of Benjamin. And Saul was named for one of the most uh, well-known members of that tribe, who was Saul, King Saul. Uh, who had a rather ignominious death on Mount Gilboa. Uh, His education was strictly Jewish. As we can see, they're devoted to uh, uh, the Pharisaical teachings, so they would have been separatists. They would not have mingled very much with the Greek culture. So I doubt that he uh, knew much about Greek culture uh, because he wasn't in the kind of uh, family that would have mixed a lot with them. But he did have a position of privilege because he was a Roman citizen. He he was named, he was given two names. One was his Hebrew name, his uh, pronomen, Shaul, and then his Roman cognomen was Apollos. And so he would have been known uh, mostly within the Jewish community by Shaul or Saul. And later on, as his ministry develops within the Gentile community, he becomes known as Paul. Paul was not a name that he picked up later. It's not his baptism name, his Christian name. It is simply another name that he was given, uh, and he would have been given that as a Roman citizen. He would have had a Roman uh, cognomen. In Philippians 3, verses 5 and 6, he tells us a little bit about his family background. He says that he was circumcised the eighth day. This is according to the Mosaic law. Every male child would be circumcised on the eighth day. This is the first day of the second week of their life. On the eighth day, he is an Israelite from the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And that idiom means that that he is a real, true, genuine, ethnic Jew, and he is completely devoted to everything that it means to be a Hebrew, to be an Israelite and and concerning the law and his understanding of the law he did not take a view like the sadducées but he was his family was aligned with the pharisaical party and so they they were conservative now we have usually have a negative view of the pharisees when we look at them through our new testament grid of the combat between jesus and the pharisees and the sadducées but they were the conservative uh, they were the conservative, self-righteous legalists. They were not the liberals like the Sadducees. Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in the angels. They didn't believe in life after death. That's why they were called sad, you see. So the, the Pharisees believed that the Torah was from God. They were like Orthodox, the Orthodox Jews today. In fact, much of modern or post-Second Temple Judaism was shaped by the Pharisees. the The Sadducees had nothing to offer, so so modern uh, Pharisaical Judaism is really sort of the the next generation uh, from the, the Pharisees. It was the Pharisees who shaped it, and so when you think about Orthodox Judaism today, while it is in many ways different from Pharisaism. It is sort of a second or third generational development uh, from uh, Pharisaism. So it was very conservative in that way. Uh, concerning zeal, pers- he says, persecuting the church. He was passionate about destroying Christianity. And then he says, concerning the righteousness which is from the law, blameless. He believed clearly that righteousness came from ritual observance. And he was dedicated to that. Now what he's going to say from Philippians 3, 7 on is that he discovered that righteousness uh, from the law was was worthless, that it's only righteousness from God that has any meaning. And the only way to get God's righteousness is by trusting in Jesus Christ. But this is, verses 5 and 6 tell us about Saul before he was saved. In Acts 22, 3 through 5, we see another uh, autobiographical explanation as he is talking here to the the mob of Jews who want to stone him outside the temple. He's come to Jerusalem to sacrifice. Uh, He's identified this mob of Jews gets stirred up. They want to kill him. Uh, A Roman centurion comes along to protect him, and he says, well, I want to speak to the crowd. So he's going to uh, give this this speech, and so he gives his testimony to this hostile crowd, and he says, I'm indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. Once again, this whole concept of zeal, just think of it as, as passion on steroids. And he is completely dedicated, passionate, devoted to the uh, application and spread of the Mosaic Law. And then he says, "I persecuted the way to the death." So again, Luke says he was he he, he was breathing mur- threats and murder. Here he says, "I persecuted to the death." So he is a murderer. He is causing and bringing about the death of Christians just because. Uh, they had believed Jesus was the Messiah. He says this included binding and delivering into prison both men and women. And he, then he called, He says, and the high priest will bear witness to this as well as all the council of the elders, that would be the Sanhedrin, from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there uh, to Jerusalem to be punished. So again, he is stating that he was He he was the poster child of Second Temple Judaism. If you wanted to be uh, the greatest, most devoted uh, Jew in that period, the the model uh, Jew was the Apostle Paul. But then something happened. He was confronted on the road to Damascus by Jesus Christ and, and we have to understand who he was before he was saved to realize nobody makes this kind of 180-degree shift because, just be, out of some kind of a psychotic break or dementia or just because they had um, some sort of uh, guilt complex over all of the people that they had brought uh, to death, but that, that that this is a radical... Change that goes to the very core of his being, and it could only happen because something truly did take place on the road to Damascus. He didn't just have some; uh, he just didn't wipe out over a guilt complex. And he describes it this way in Galatians one. He says, "For I neither received it from man; it wasn't a human being that gave me this this information, nor was I taught it. He didn't get it from one of the disciples." but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he says, For you heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous or passionate for the traditions of my father. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through grace... He certainly didn't deserve to be saved. He was guilty of heinous sins and crimes against humanity, and yet he is saved and forgiven by God because of what Christ did on the cross. That is the gospel. It's not based on who we are, what we do. It's based on who Jesus Christ and what he did. So Paul, more than anyone, he calls himself the chief of sinners. No one can say they're more guilty than he But he understands that that whether you're a little bit guilty or a lot guilty, we're all under the same condemnation. It's not that you've only killed one person and he killed 10 million people. doesn't matter. It's all the death penalty. And so he emphasizes that it is God who calls us through the gospel of grace. Now, we'll come back next time to get into some more of the details. But this is the starting point of what transforms Christianity and transforms Saul's life and should transform our lives. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to recognize your grace that it's not based on who we are. No matter how relative our goodness may be, it's never good enough. It is only the righteousness of Christ that gives us a basis for salvation and standing before you. This is what Saul learned. This is what we have learned. And we pray that you would continue to challenge us with our understanding of how much we owe you because we've done nothing on our own. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.